number of questions that were submitted to us uh, we were asked to respond to. As you can imagine, some of them are difficult questions. And the one that I've been asked to address this morning, I would put in that category. Um, the question I've been asked to address is, can a Christian believe in evolution? And it's a difficult question because contained in it are a number of other issues and questions that should be addressed first. So I kind of uh, look at it sort of like that. Our good friend Yoda. Let's pray first. Creator God, our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would enable us to see you and worship you in all that you've made. Grant us humble hearts and open minds as we seek to understand this wonderful universe you've created and to love you with all our heart, soul, spirit, and mind for you're worthy of our praise, our wonder, and our adoration. I pray you'd use anything I have to share today to encourage us to seek you, to seek truth, and above all, to glorify your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So the can of worms that our good friend Yoda is referring to is, of course, the whole creationist-evolutionist controversy. And along with that, the tension which exists between the discipline of scientific inquiry and religious faith. Typically, one expects a person addressing these sort of issues to begin by presenting a long list of evidences for or against the two positions. And they're always presented as diametrically opposed and mutually exclusive to one another. And generally, when such issues are framed this way, you get a polarization between the two points of view, a lot of passion, but more heat than light being generated. So this is how some people see the whole creation-evolution conflict. And I really kind of like this because it looks like Jesus is getting the best of him. Um, But I'm not going to do that. I have 30 minutes. (laughs) Years ago, I taught a series on origins. um, And that's how I think about these... uh, issues. They're issues about origins. So I don't cast it as evolution versus creationism. It's about origins. And I think I did four one-hour sessions, and I felt like I was only beginning to scratch the surface. So in 30 minutes, um, I'm not going to be able to do a whole lot, but I'm going to try. Also, there's ample resources available online. If you want to, like, Google the arguments and the evidence in favor of both points of view. So like I say, it's, it's a loaded question because it has a lot of presuppositions and assumptions and peripheral questions attached to it. It's loaded with the baggage of centuries of conflict and controversy between science and religion. Um, but since it's a simple question, I'm going to give you a simple answer. And the answer is, yes, you can. The caveat being... We need a little better definition of the word evolution here. 
So I want to break down this question a little more later, but let me highlight what I think some of the main things are to consider. Um, first of all, it says, can I believe in evolution as a Christian? So I see in that what is meant, obviously you can believe in anything you want, but I think what they're saying is, would it be wrong or bad or heretical for me to believe in evolution? So the next part is a Christian, can a Christian, and I think the context of that is, is there anything about believing in evolutionary and th- an evolutionary theory of cosmology or biology which is in direct contradiction with my faith in a creator God and following Jesus? And again, I think the answer is no. Believe, what does it mean to believe in something? There's certain beliefs that we should hold on to very lightly and allow room for differences of conviction. And others, as Christians, that we should hold firmly to. They are essential to who we believe God is and who we believe Jesus Christ is. <coughs> Excuse me. And then evolution. Many times people put the question, are you a creationist or an evolutionist? And along with these terms comes a host of stereotypes and assumptions. For instance, when most people use the term creationist, they usually include in that label that you must believe the universe and the earth were created in six literal 24-hour days and are no more than a maximum of 6,000 years old. And when people use the term evolutionist, they include in that label, you don't believe in a creator God. In fact, neither are necessarily the case. You can be a creationist, i.e., believe in in a creator without necessarily believing in a young earth. You can be an evolutionist, that is, believing in change over time. That's what evolution is, change over time. Without requiring that God be excluded from the process. So included in in the belief of change over time for a person who believes in God but also believes in evolution would be that God would be orchestrating those changes over time. And God understands time differently than we do. Here's a couple, here's a couple examples from the scripture. Psalm 90, verse 2 through 4 says, Before the mountains were born or you were brought forth, the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. And Peter refers to this passage in the New Testament. He says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, but instead he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So in that context, he was talking about why the Lord hadn't come back yet. We always want to put God in a box and on a timeline of our own devising, and he always seems to refuse to cooperate. In addition, there's two other issues that are lumped together in the word evolution, which are indeed separate. 
He might describe them, one, as cosmological evolution, having to do with the origins of the universe, and the other has to do with biological evolution, having to do with the origins and diversity of life. So there are two separate issues there. And in the biological evolution side, there are also two separate issues or two separate distinctions to be made. One is microevolution. And microevolution is simply adaptation over time. And this occurs within a species as a species adapts to the environment. And you can clearly see that in the breeding of dogs through natural selection and even artificial selection. People breed dogs for different characteristics. And by doing so, they create new breeds of dogs. But they're all dogs. And the variety we see in dogs comes out of a basic dogness that is common to all dogs. So if I wanted to cheat, I could say right now, can, you believe, can I believe in evolution as a Christian? Microevolution is easily demonstrable from all kinds of examples in nature, so yes, you can. But that would be cheating because that's really not what the person I think is asking. What the person is really asking is about the next kind of evolution, which is macroevolution, which is the theory that just as new breeds develop through genetic mutation and the process of natural selection, new species can also evolve from other species. This is the basis for the belief that all life evolves from prototypical single-cell life forms and becomes more complex over time until you reach the mammals, the primates, and then man. Although, try as they may, evolutionists have a difficult time explaining exactly where the prototypical single-cell organisms came into being, strictly through time and chance. Life always seems to come from life. So that's a problem. So I'm going to set this aside for now, um, except to say there's evidence to suggest macroevolution could, in fact, be an explanation for the biological diversity we see today. However, and this is a big however, if that is the case, it doesn't automatically follow that God was not orchestrating this process. And that that may have been his intended mechanism for creating our human form. What I like to think of as my meat suit. This is my meat suit. Human body, in both the Genesis account and modern scientific understanding, is made from the dust of the earth. And to the dust of the earth it shall return. It's the process of the making and the why behind it that's at issue. Genesis 2.7 tells us, Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. We don't understand all that the word formed really means from God's perspective. Except there was a time when our physicality was being created by him and a point at which he breathed his life into that physical form, and it became a living being, bearing the image of God himself. Personally, although I'm an ancient creationist, and some people would say, yeah, and you're getting older all the time, but I accept 
evolutionary cosmology as true. I believe the earth and the universe to be very old on the order of billions of years. I remain very skeptical of some of the claims of the macroevolutionary theory. There's very little physical evidence, for instance, in the fossil record to support it and a lot of problematic contradictions to deal within, within it. Where did the first life form come from that everything evolved from, etc.? Um, personally, I believe the creation of man was a singular creation event. But I believe there's a lot of room for differences of view on this, and I believe you can be a Christian and believe our physical form was evolved by God as his method of forming it. So, having waded through all that, I want to go on, actually, and talk about some related issues. So I hope I answered the question. Um, at least that's what I believe the answer is. I believe you can. So the question is, how should we as Christians approach understanding and seeking to answer difficult questions? Here's some things to consider. First of all, asking a good question is the first step in finding a good answer. It's important how a question is posed and to understand what exactly is being asked. And that's not always easy to see. If, for instance, my wife says to me, Honey, what do you think of this dress? That's a question. Well, here's one possible answer. (laughs) But the correct answer is, It's lovely, dear. And, and you look wonderful wearing it. So you need to understand the question. So that's the first thing we have to do. Second thing, as we're seeking to answer difficult questions, searching for truth. Life is a journey, and seeking for truth is also a journey. We have some wonderful resources available for us in that search. Stay humble. And here are some of them. And in the context of these questions about origins, I put a few verses to accompany each one. The first one that we can look to is we can look to the scriptures, which we believe to be inerrant. Inerrant means that the Bible is without error or fault in all of its teaching, in the original manuscripts, and and never affirms anything which is contrary to fact. That's what inerrancy means. The Bible is revelatory truth. God in his word has revealed certain truths to us which we would not know if he had not chosen to reveal them. Regarding the scriptures as a source of truth requires faith. Faith that though they were written by men, they were inspired by God. Matthew 7, 7, Jesus says, Seek and you will find. So we sometimes find ourselves, though, wrestling with some of the things we see in Scripture, but our difficulty, I would offer, is in our understanding of the Scripture, not with the Scripture itself. We need to stay humble and acknowledge we're flawed human beings And our understanding of all things is from a human and limited perspective. 
If you take the totality of all the things you believe right now about everything, it's almost certain some of these things are true. Some of these things actually aren't true or only partially true. And that's because our understanding, your understanding, my understanding is imperfect. So we need to keep that. It's always good to stay humble as we search for truth. Second place that we can look for truth, uh, particularly regarding origins, is the creation itself. It's the handiwork of God. That which he made, and we can learn a lot through observation and exploration and examination of it. Paul references this as a reason people have no excuse for living in sin. It's in Romans 1.20. He says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. We see God in his creation. Psalm 19, 1 through 4 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. The creation around us is a testimony of God's character, his power, his might. It speaks to us. And the third place that we can look for truth is our own experience. Our own experience of life and observation. As Christians, our experience is informed by the Holy Spirit, God sent to us to dwell in us. And as John sixteen thirteen says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So in difficult questions, you know, as we seek to know the truth, I want to encourage you to pray and ask God by his Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you in your search. I think you can have confidence that he will. We need to understand that we have limitations in our ability to understand truth. We're human, so stay humble. God's truth is absolute. And absolute truth is reality from his perspective, from God's perspective. It's complete, it's perfect, and it's unchangeable. It is what is. Just like the Lord said, I am that I am. That's absolute truth. But relative truth is where we live. It's the realm human beings live in. It's the truth relative to our ability to understand it from our perspective as creatures. God understands truth from his perspective as the creator. So, Getting back to our question, one of the problems is 
As Christians, we believe faith and revelation are sources of truth and knowledge. They're valid sources. Um, We believe that God spoke to us in the Holy Scripture, that he speaks to us through his Holy Spirit. But this is the first bone of contention and conflict that people of faith and people of science have. Because in science, they believe the source of truth, there is only one source of truth. In in philosophical terms, it's called empiricism. That is, all knowledge is sense knowledge. Only can be known through sight, sound, taste, smell, and touch. And anything beyond that is not valid knowledge. That obviously brings science and faith into a little bit of conflict. Because as Christians, although we accept the validity of empirical knowledge... We do not believe that a search for truth is limited solely to it. We believe in revelation knowledge. We believe that the scripture is trustworthy and reliable. We believe in prayer. We believe in the illumination of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. All these things are sources of truth. But to a pure scientist, speaking as a scientist, thinking as a scientist, this worldview is totally unacceptable. Truth is that which can be experimentally verified through observation. Physics is allowed in the framework of science. Metaphysics is not. But in fact, for a scientist to have that point of view is entirely appropriate. It's how science is done. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with the scientific method, but this is it basically summarized. You ask a question, you do background research, You construct a hypothesis, which is a proposed explanation based on limited evidence as a starting point. Then you test your hypothesis, you develop an experiment, you analyze the data after running the experiment, and you communicate the above. The communicating of the published or publishing of the work is for review by other people who are doing the same work so that they can verify your work and also so they can repeat it. So that's how science is done. That's how science progresses. So these are kind of the rules. If you're going to do science, this is how you do it. And by using this method, science and the technology that comes from it have given us many blessings from God, I believe, including modern medicine. Many of the earliest scientists, and many today as well, We're also men of faith. There would be men like Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, Newton, and Boyle. They saw their scientific inquiries into the nature of the universe which God had made as a form of worship. There was no conflict between their faith and science. They did not believe anything they would discover scientifically would disprove the existence of a creator God or invalidate their faith. And they were absolutely correct. Nothing which science has ever discovered about the universe has ever disproved the existence of God or ever really contradicted the Bible. Sometimes the conflict between science and religion is not at all what it seems. I'll give you two examples. First is the trial of Galileo. And this is often um, offered as a classic confrontation between faith and science or the church and science, what have you. 
but nothing really could be further from the truth. So Galileo, and there's a good reason he looks kind of sad here. He was getting ready to face the Inquisition, the Roman Inquisition, by the way, not the Spanish Inquisition, because no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. So are my Monty Python friends. And I like this quote from Brother Galileo. I do not feel obliged that the same God who in doubt us with sense, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use. I agree. God wants us to use our minds and our intellect. So Galileo, while he was observing the motion of the moons around Jupiter, proposed that maybe the earth and the planets all move around the sun in the same way. And then the chicken cacciatore hit the fan, so to speak. I had to choose an Italian dish because Galileo was Italian, Roman Catholic Church, anyway. So, what happened was the, the church, in fact, at the time was championing a view of cosmology that was advanced by Aristotle which was that the earth was the center of everything and everything revolved around it. So, Galileo, a Christian, a brother, Brother Galileo, he was actually championing God's truth because, in fact, the earth does revolve around the sun. So, Galileo was actually championing God's truth and the church was championing a secular truth, that of Aristotle. So, in fact what's usually portrayed as a battle between science and faith is the other way around. So Galileo was actually championing God's truth and the church at the time, the Roman Catholic Church, wasn't championing the Bible. They were actually championing Aristotle. And eventually they apologized to Galileo. It was in 2000. They apologized. Sometimes it takes a long time to admit you're wrong. In this case, about 350 years. All right, so that that was a case where the conflict isn't really what it seemed to be. So here's a second one. Now, everybody's heard of the Big Bang Theory, right? There's even like a TV show. I don't think it has a lot to do with cosmology. but, um, But do you know what the prevailing cosmological theory was before that? Before the Big Bang Theory? It was called the steady-state theory. And really, what it said was the universe has always been in existence. Always. There's never been a time when it wasn't in existence. And that is in contradiction to the Bible. Because the Bible says God created it. It wasn't always in existence. It came into existence. He spoke it into existence by his word. There was a creation event. So eventually, science, observing the universe, doing experiments, looking at the evidence that's there, said, no, the steady state theory is not what we see. What we see is evidence that there was a creation event. Let there be light. So 
Actually, that was a case where science ended up rejecting a theory that was in contradiction to the Bible and accepting a theory that was much more in line with the biblical account. So what should you believe about origins as a Christian? Our question today was kind of like more, what could I believe? What should you believe? Here's some certain things I think which are essential. And this is from the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. That's number one. Number two, we're his creatures. We are created to reflect him and his glory. Genesis one twenty seven. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Number three, Jesus Christ was there at the beginning, and he will be there at the end. And through him and for him, all things were made, and that includes you. Genesis, in the famous opening verse, says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Genesis 1.1. John 1.1 reveals to us a little bit more. And the parallel form here is not at all accidental. Genesis 1.1, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is separating the light from the darkness today. So, it's all about Jesus. That's how I would like to close. Because the creation is all about him. Jesus, speaking of himself in the book of Revelation, says, I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He was there at the creation. And there's nothing more that I've said today more important than to know this. There is a God... He is the creator of all things, including you. He's not out there somewhere aloof and separate from his creation. He didn't wind the universe up like a giant clockwork and split for parts unknown. He's our true and heavenly father. He knows you intimately, knows all your hopes and fears and joys and faults and failings and sin, and yet he loves you dearly and wants good for you eternally. To that end, he sent his son, Jesus, who lived and walked among us. Emmanuel, God with us. God made flesh. And 
Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. The galaxies, the quasars, the black holes, the supernovas, in Him all things hold together. Psalm 19 says that the creation is shouting at us all the time. So what's it shouting about? It's shouting about Jesus. Luke tells us a story in the gospel, in his gospel in 19, that Jesus came in Jerusalem. He was riding on the back of a donkey, and the people began to joyfully praise God. In loud voices, they shouted out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And the Pharisees didn't like that. They said, teacher, rebuke your disciples for saying these things. Jesus said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The creation is crying out about Jesus all the time. And the same Jesus died in order that our sins be forgiven. God raised him from the dead. And a risen man, the Son of Man, the Son of God, sits at this very moment on the throne of the creation and will reign over it forever. Do you believe this? If you do, rejoice. He's with you and you will be with him. If you don't, then I pray you might seek for him and find him. He taught us that anyone who would seek for him would find him. If you really want to know the truth, if you really want to know with all your heart if there's a God, if there's a creator, then ask him to reveal himself to you. He will lead you to the foot of Jesus' cross. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this wonderful creation you've given us. As the writer of the psalm says, we are fearfully, fearfully and wonderfully made, and so are the planets and the stars and the galaxies, and all of your creation fearfully and wonderfully made. May we marvel at your handiwork in it. May we worship you for your power and majesty revealed. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that in all the questions we may have, in all the things, in all of life, you are there at the center. You are preeminent, you are exalted, you're high and lifted up, and that all of the mysteries and marvels which exist in this universe, none is more mysterious and marvelous than though we were utterly lost, you came to rescue us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. And now um, we're going to continue to worship, and we just invite you to come up and take communion um, during our worship.